following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12. We finally made it to the, uh, the transition from the, the doctrinal section of Romans to uh, more of the practical exhortational section. And our text for today is, is Romans 12, 1 and 2, as you can see on the screen. Let's go ahead and read uh, this very familiar but wonderful passage. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. One of the best books that I have ever read is uh, the biography of Adnarm Judson uh, called To the Golden Shore. I don't know if any of you have read it before, but it's, it's a fascinating book. And, and if you don't know who Judson is, uh, Judson was the very first foreign missionary from the United States of America. And, uh, and, and his story is a fascinating story. I, I would really encourage any believer to, to pick up that book and read it. But while it's a fascinating story, his story was not a very romantic story for Judson himself. Judson suffered in a third world prison. He endured severe illness. And he lost two wives and several children in the lonely jungles of Burma. And what I, one thing I love about Judson's story, though, is that no one, no one who would have met that the teenage virgin of Judson would have thought that this guy is going to become a, a tremendous servant of the Lord. Uh, Judson's father was a, a very conservative Puritan pastor, uh, but as a teenager, Judson abandoned Christianity, denied the faith, wanted nothing to do with the things of God. But then, when he was 19 years old, God put him in a hotel room next to a man who was dying. And all night long, Judson listened to this man groan and moan as he moved towards death. The next morning, the hotel clerk told him that the man had passed away, and God used that experience to to bring Judson to his knees, and Judson got saved. And, And God really saved Judson. And, uh, and he took off spiritually, and eventually, uh, after a few years, he surrendered to the work of missions. Now, Judson didn't do so with some sort of romantic sense of what it was going to mean to be a missionary. No, no, he, he fully understood the, the threats, the suffering, and frankly, even the death rate of missionaries in the 19th century. And just as an example of that, listen to the letter that he wrote to his eventual father-in-law asking if he could marry his daughter named Anne. He, he writes this letter. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, 
to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of Him who left His heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing immortal souls? For the sake of Zion and the glory of God? Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall redound to her Savior from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Dads, imagine getting that request from a young man. What would you say? What would you say? Well, Judson, or excuse me, Anne's dad said yes. And, and Anne said yes as well. And they sailed for Burma in 1812. And, and Anne did get to return to America one time. So Judson was not right about that. But otherwise, everything else in that letter came true. Anne Judson died when she was only 36 years old in the jungles of Burma after burying her only two children. And Judson's story is stunning. It is radical. And it perfectly illustrates the surrender that God demands from every Christian in this room. Now, now sure, God hasn't called all of us, in fact, probably not many, maybe none of us at all, to, to die on the mission field. But He does demand that you be willing to give everything to God. And God commands you in this passage to surrender everything to the Lord. He wants all of your heart and He wants all of your passion. And to make that point, verse 1 commands you to sacrifice everything. Sacrifice everything. Now now notice here that verse 1 is no suggestion. No, instead, Paul summons all of his apostolic, God-given authority and he urges you by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So so that word urges there. It's like, you know, Paul is clapping his hands. He's pounding his fist. And he's urging you as a Christian to, to give everything to God, to sacrifice it all. Now, what does that mean? Well, Well, first of all, it means that you have to give it all. You have to give it all. That's what he means by a living sacrifice. Now, now when you think of a, of a living sacrifice there, you ought to think of the imagery of the Old Testament sacrificial system. So, so when Israel approached God in worship, they had to bring a sacrifice which they would present at the tabernacle or the temple. Now those sacrifices were, were very costly, especially in a world where, where most people were living hand to mouth. But God here isn't just demanding that the same level of sacrifice as a man who brings a lamb to the temple, right? God here is commanding you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And really, you could say your whole person. And I want you to hear that from the perspective of the lamb, right? Because when the lamb goes to the temple, it's not like he goes in there, suffers a bit, and wakes up the next day with options of other things to do with his life. Now, when the lamb goes to the temple, he's not coming out again. At least not alive. 
He gave everything to the purpose of atonement. And so often, we want to be committed to God, but we only want to be committed on our terms. I think probably, I've got a, a silly illustration here, it's dumb, but, but I think it makes the point of, 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 the, of the distinction between what God is commanding of us and, and what we so often want to do. The, the parable goes like this, a pig and a chicken are walking down the road. The chicken says, hey pig, I was thinking we should open a restaurant. Pig replies, hmm, maybe, what should we call it? The chicken responds, how about ham and eggs? The pig thought for a moment and replied, no thanks. I'd be committed. You'd only be involved. <laughs> right? The, the chicken, the chicken, he can give a lot of eggs and still wake up the next day with life in front of him. But the pig, for the pig to give a ham, he has to give his life. That's a silly illustration, but it makes a very important point. Are you a chicken or a pig kind of Christian? Does God have all of you or just some of you? When God speaks to you in His Word, do you have to think about it? Get defensive with what He's saying. Try to negotiate with God about what you'll give Him and what He can have. Or do you make excuses? Or is the cry of your heart when God speaks to you in His Word, you just say, yes, Lord. Whatever you want. And you might say, well, of course, yeah, you and me were sitting in church, yeah, yeah, I'd do what God wants. But if Adoniram and Ann Judson just spent a week watching your life, you know, fly in the wall, watching your routine, listening to your, your conversation, listening to the complaints on your heart, what would they think of your living sacrifice? I'm, I'm pretty sure that they would say, that a lot of Christians are just playing games. And we have no idea sometimes what it is to, to sacrifice like they did. You know, so many Christians, you know, they, they never share the gospel because, because someone might get mad at me or, or because I might get embarrassed. And folks, Judson spent 17 months in, in a primitive Burmese prison on the edge of death. But, but we'll skip church because... We're a little tired. We didn't sleep well. Or because the weather is a little crummy. And folks, what's wrong with us sometimes? There, there are Christians all over the country of China, millions of Christians who gathered today in the country of China to worship God under the very real threat that they would be put in prison for gathering as God's people. And we, we jam our lives full of activity after activity. We chase this pleasure and that pleasure over here. And, 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 and when life gets just a slightly uncomfortable, we think, oh, I need my space. And, and we're so fragile sometimes. And amazingly, we, we have no time to invest in the Great Commission because we think that we are so busy, so worn out. If Jesus appeared tomorrow and said to you, sell all that you have and come follow me, what would you say? Well, I hope you'd say yes. And, and of course, he's not going to do that. But he has said to you with just as much authority in our text that you are to present your whole life as a living sacrifice. 
So obey Him. And think about what are you holding back from serving the Lord? What is not on the table for God to take? Stop playing games. Give everything you have to, as a living sacrifice to please the Lord. So, so God tells you, first of all, that you have to give it all. There is nothing that God does not own, that God does not deserve from you. You need to give it all. And then the second challenge of verse 1 is that you need to give it worthily. So Paul goes on to say in verse 1, our sacrifice must be holy and acceptable to God. Now that language there uh, of holy and acceptable, again, recalls the standards that God gave for the sacrifices that Israel brought to the temple. That God demanded the best, right? They, they couldn't bring a, a, you know, the, the, the runt of the litter or the, the lamb with a broken leg. They had to bring the best. And He demanded that they honor His standards for what they brought, not theirs. And God, God illustrated this for us beautifully I don't know if beautiful is the right word, but, but very soberingly in the story of Nadab and Abihu. You know the story? Israel, God gives them the law. They, 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 they build the tabernacle. They get everything set up to, to do their worship. And, and then it's finally the day for them to begin tabernacle worship. And, and so they offer the sacrifices. They do the things that God prescribes. God's glory comes down. The people are overwhelmed by what they see of the glory of God. And it is an amazing moment. And then in that very same context, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's two oldest sons, got lazy about following the prescriptions of worship that God had laid out. And the text just simply tells us that they offered strange fire. Now, now that doesn't mean... So, so they didn't bring a prostitute into the temple. They didn't offer a pig on the altar. No, instead, all that they probably did was they used coals from a common fire to, to light incense instead of using coals from the altar of burnt offering. The wrong fire. And what did God do? God killed them on the spot. Leviticus 12, or two, 10 verse 2 says, Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And then God explained, it says, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. So God made it very clear, right from the get-go, that you do not mess with my requirements. You do it my way or not at all. Your sacrifice must be holy and acceptable. And yet, and sometimes we really think a lot of ourselves. And we think, you know, God is so desperate for my love that, that God will just take whatever I want to give Him. You know, that I can dictate to God what pleases Him and, and, and what He wants, and so we make up our own standards. It's absurd. Have you ever had someone give you a thoughtless gift? Like they put no effort into it all, they just walked into Target and grabbed what was on the dollar shelf? Or this is a good one, have you ever had some, you? you you're maybe talking to your parents or talking to a relative and, and you say, you know, I want this. And they think, ah, that's a dumb request. I'm going to get this over here because I think it's better. Do you feel honored when someone does that? Do you feel loved? No. So what does God think when you are careless 
about understanding and obeying His will? Do you really love Him? If you are not, in the words of Ephesians 5.10, trying, or you could say striving, to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So, So for example, your testimony as a Christian matters. It matters. Because you are to be a living, breathing, walking display of the glory of God to the world around you. So do you know what the Bible teaches about a modest heart and modest dress? Do you love the Lord enough to think seriously about how you should present yourself in a way that accurately reflects the glory of God to the world around you? Now, now, we're not all going to come to the same conclusions on something like that. But, But you better not think, well, it just doesn't matter. I mean, if we love the Lord, we are going to be committed to understanding what He says and obeying it. You know, think about your time. Do you know what the Bible says about what your priorities ought to be with your schedule? And do you strive, do you wrestle carefully with the priorities of your life? Or do you just kind of make it up as you go? Don't be like Nadab and Abihu. Don't think, well, it doesn't really matter. God doesn't care. He does. He demands a holy and acceptable sacrifice based on His standards, not yours. So study, think, pray, obey the Lord. I mean, every married person in this room understands this. You know, I, I honor my wife. I honor Heidi. And I love her well when, when, I, when I understand her heart. When I think about what she loves, what she doesn't love, when I listen carefully to her passions and desires, and I strive to fulfill them. Do the same for God. Now, don't just assume that you know what He likes and what He doesn't like. Listen to His Word. Seek godly counsel. Embrace correction. Because you love God. And you want to present to Him a sacrifice that is holy and acceptable. So so the second challenge of verse 2 is to give it worthily. And then the third challenge of verse 1 is to give it gladly. Give it gladly. Now, now folks, this is, this is really important. All right? Really important. Because God's standard is very high, right? Now, your flesh does not like it. All right? I've heard this text preached a lot of times in my life. This is one of those passages when I was a teenager when I, when I saw a preacher open to this one, I'm like, oh no. He's going to go after me. So our flesh doesn't like this passage. And it will devise excuse after excuse as, as to why God's asking too much. He can't take this. He doesn't have a right to that. And if the only force that is binding you to God's demands are guilt, shame, emotional manipulation, fear of embarrassment, the flesh is eventually going to win out. Or you'll become a terrible hypocrite. But thankfully... We have a much higher motivation than any of those things. And Paul frames the command by saying, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Now, now as I mentioned in the the introduction, that therefore is a major hinge in the book of Romans. And so it, it links 
the, the theological section of the book in chapters 1 through 11 with, with the practical section in chapters 12 through 16. And so, specifically, uh, Paul has just spent 11 chapters, and we have spent uh, just about 18 months walking through the most detailed exposition of God's grace in all of Scripture. The best. And we've seen that, that we are wretched sinners who serve a great Savior. We've seen that we are hopelessly lost, but God extended mercy. So, so I mean, isn't it fascinating that Paul sums up everything he has said, you know, down to the, the, the doxology that we looked at last week, that, that God has, has, is wise and merciful and He deserves our praise. He sums up all of that as the mercies of God. And so, this, therefore, might be the most pregnant therefore that has ever been spoken. So God wants you to remember all that we have seen about the glory, the grace, the mercy, the wisdom of God. And he says, let your heart be filled with wonder and amazement, humility and love. And chapters 1 through 11 make this command so much more pregnant. And so remember that. And then let the mercy of God drive you to obey God's commands. And it has to be the mercy of God. That is so important. right? Because, because as your pastor, I care about you. And I pray for you. And I want to do everything I can to urge you to obey the command that God gives in this passage. But you will never do what God is demanding for me. And you will never do what God is demanding for anyone else in this room. If you're just trying to save face or please people, you're either going to end up a terrible hypocrite or you're going to fizzle out. And if you are driven solely by guilt, shame, emotionalism, fear of embarrassment, or any other lesser thing, the flesh will win. So grace has to drive duty. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says that the love of Christ, my love for the Savior, that is what controls me. So, so when I dwell deeply on all that God is, when I think about the mercies of God in chapters 1-11, through 11, I love Him. Do you love the Lord? And do you want to love Him more? Now, now I'm, I'm still a sinner and so are you. So I'm going to fall short. Every day of your life, to some, to some extent, you're going to fail to live up to the standard of Romans 12, verse 1. And so we're not going to get there perfectly. But, 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 but by the grace of God, I want to get there. So, so you need the daily confrontation of Scripture. You need biblical preaching. You need friends who are going to hold you accountable and tell you the things you need to hear. So, so we need all that stuff. But, but folks, fundamentally, grace has to drive duty. I heard a preacher say once about this passage that for every, uh, let me read it here, for every glance that you take at your duty, take a hundred glances at the grace of God. For every glance you take at your duty, Take a hundred glances at the grace of God. Now, that's an exaggeration, certainly not a technical thing where you need to sit at home and tally that up. But, but you get the point. Gaze at the grace of God. Love Him. Trust Him. Give glory to Him. And when you do that, when, when you love God, then this passage does not appear harsh. 
It doesn't appear harsh. Instead, your heart resonates with it. And your heart will resonate specifically with the conclusion he makes at the end of verse 1, that it is your spiritual service of worship. Now, now I, I love the fact that Paul frames everything he says in this verse as an act of worship to God. I, I love that. Again, it's not just duty. And you love the Lord. And you should be thankful for all that He has done. And so because of all that He has done, you want to please Him. And you want others to see that glory too. And, and, so, and so when I love God... I pursue this verse as an act of worship. I want him to be praised and glorified by my life. Now, that doesn't mean that you just always feel it, right? That every day you just wake up on cloud nine, happy to serve Jesus. It's never painful or difficult. It is hard. It's difficult all the time. But, but, but folks, when you're thinking right about that, when you embrace the perspective of God's mercy, I mean, Paul says that you won't be grouchy about what God demands. You will instead see it as reasonable. Now, now the NASB here has, a, it says, spiritual service of worship, but, but the Greek word that's translated spiritual service is, is the word logikos. We get our word logical from it, and, and most commentators believe that reasonable service is a better translation. So, so the point is, is that what God demands is not outlandish. Now, so maybe, as we're sitting here today, the Holy Spirit is putting something on your heart that, that you know you need to fix. And you're like, that's just too much. That's too much for God to ask. God says, no, it's not. It's reasonable. It makes sense. It's logical. So do you believe that? Like if Jesus came to you tomorrow and said, get on a boat with, with Adoniram Judson and go to Burma tomorrow. Would that be too much for God to ask? Would that be too much? If God called your child to go and do that. Would that be too much for God to ask of you? No. It is reasonable. So gaze on the incredible mercies that you have received. Be amazed at all that Jesus has done and then present your, your life, your whole body to Him as a sacrifice for His glory. And every day, every day by the grace of God, make a conscious choice that my life is a sacrifice for Him. This day belongs to you and I'm going to serve Christ. So the first challenge of, of, of the text is to sacrifice everything. And then, Verse 2 gives a second command, which is to be different. So sacrifice everything and then be different. So, so verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So really what this verse is doing is it's fleshing out how I can fulfill the command of verse 1. And I'd like to break it down into three challenges. And the first challenge is to resist worldliness. Resist worldliness. And that's what God means when He commands you here not to be conformed to the world. All right? So He's not telling you not to be conformed to the planet Earth. All right? Because that would just be silly. And He's not even telling you 
not to be conformed to people. As if you've got to be different from just people in general. Like, people wear shoes, so I can't be conformed to the world, so I'm not going to wear shoes. No, very clearly what he's talking about here is, is the world system. He's talking about the evil age that Satan dominates. And 1 John 2, verse 16 describes it as, as being fundamentally rooted in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And so all those things are deeply rooted in every person. And, and those values, those passions of the unbeliever and, and that continue in us as well, that they shape every part of the unbelieving world around us. So, so you look around at unbelieving culture, the, the philosophies of mankind, the values of unbelievers are, are rooted in, in ungodliness. And, and that ungodliness shapes their entertainment. It shapes their fashion. It shapes their politics. It shapes their goals. Now, by the way, I want to be very clear here that when we think of worldliness, you know, usually we've all got our own picture of what worldliness is. Like worldliness is the other people, right? Like worldliness is the, is the creepy, you know, you know, people over here that do odd things that I think are strange. Worldliness is just Hollywood. But, but we need to understand that worldliness comes in many shapes and sizes. It can be red or blue politically. It can be skinny jeans or wranglers. It can be white collar or it can be welfare. But God warns that all worldliness is hostile to a biblical perspective on life. And so Paul warns us that, that, we, cannot be con, that, that we cannot be conformed to that. That Satan is constantly trying to conform you to the world. You know, I mean, every worldly community that Satan devises is designed to squeeze you into its mold. So that you think like them, you love what they love, you look like them, and you behave like them. And, and Satan, he pounds you. Or sometimes he just taps on you. Day after day after day. Tugging at your fleshly passions and pride. And, and what he does is he numbs us to, to the filth around us. And presses us into its mold. And so often we have no idea how ungodly our hearts and our behavior really are. So God says, wake up. Do not be conformed to the world. You know, I, again, I don't think much of the time we have any clue how conformed we have become. Like I want imagine if Paul, again, were a fly in the wall in our houses for a week and just watched our lives. Watched what we watched on TV, listened to what we listened to, looked at how we lived our lives and, and what, what mattered to us, the entertainment we enjoy. And he would be appalled. He would be appalled by things that we think are so normal. Our culture is clearly sliding. I think like, man, if my grandpa came back from the dead and looked at how so many Christians live today, it's just devastating. How numbed we have become to the evil around us. And, and, and again, don't fool yourself into believing, well, that because you dress conservatively and listen to classical music, that you're safe from all of this. The Pharisees looked very spiritual, didn't they? But they were terribly worldly. 
So pride, lust, and hypocrisy can take many shapes. So you need to beware of Satan's devices. And he's very good at finding something, a niche that works just right to get into your heart. He has a mighty bag of evil tricks. And so you need to examine your heart often. You need to ask God to convict you of sin. You need to listen to to godly counsel. And and you need to work hard to make sure that you are not conformed to the world. So, So by God's grace, and by God's grace alone, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Refuse to be conformed to the world. And then the second challenge of verse 2 is to transform your life. Transform your life. So so resist worldliness. Second, transform your life. So so he goes on to say in verse 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, I want to emphasize with Paul that the fight against the worldliness begins where? He says it begins in the mind. All right? And that's important because worldliness does not only reside outside me. It's not like you're super spiritual and you just live in this horrible place. No. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, where do they start? They start right here. So your biggest problem is you. Not anyone around you. And And so I need a radical transformation first and foremost about what I believe, what I think, what I value what I love, and, and how I look at the world. It starts here. Well, how does that happen? How, how, do I, how can I be transformed? Well, well, I don't want us to miss the fact that, that both of the, the first two verbs in, in verse 2 are both in the passive voice. So, so he says, do not be conformed, and he says, be transformed, and, and, and neither of them are in the active voice. Now, that's significant because who is doing the action here fundamentally? It's God. It's not me that ultimately does this. It is God that does it in me. So so you cannot be truly transformed into the divine image. Like really love the Lord and serve God down to the core of your soul if you're just trying to do it in your own strength. This is not just you making yourself a better person. Trying harder, thinking harder, putting forth more effort. No. God has to do this. So, so how, do you, how, how does that happen? Well, well 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that, that as we behold the glory of the Lord, we are transformed into the same image. So what do you need to do? You need to behold the glory of the Lord every day. If you want to be transformed, then you need to live in His Word. You need to devote yourself to prayer. You need to sit under biblical preaching with a hungry heart Every chance possible. You need to spend time with godly people having real fellowship. If you're going to be a holy and acceptable sacrifice, you cannot be conformed to the world. You must be transformed. So, So do you hate your sin? Do you pray, God, search my heart? Or are you scared of what He'll find and so you just kind of pretend like it's not there? How many sins did you confess to the Lord this week? If it was zero, one, maybe two, I guarantee you committed more than that. 
And so as your heart, Lord, search me, know me, show me my sin, change me. And are you putting yourself in the best position possible to grow and to see your family grow? Now, I mean, just a practical test here. Where does the church calendar fit in the priorities of your life? Like, is it you build everything else out, and then, you know, if the church can fit in here and there and a couple of other places, that's good enough? I know you're busy. I've never met anyone in my life that doesn't think they're busy. I know you get tired. Some of you have significant health issues and physical pain. But your soul matters. So just a practical example. I mean, if you you really believe that you can better prepare yourself for this week by watching a football game this evening or a movie, instead of coming out and listening to God's Word and fellowshiping with God's people, then your heart is not where it needs to be. Now, there could be also a multitude of reasons why, why you make the decision that you make, but, but, but you need to really think about what matters to you. And what do you believe about your soul? And God is calling you to something so much better more glorious and more satisfying than the trite nonsense of this world. So so by the grace of God, hate the worldliness of your heart and pray that God would transform you into the beautiful image of His Son. So resist worldliness. Be transformed. And as as those two things happen, you'll be able to obey the third challenge of verse 2, which is to think God's thoughts. Verse 2 ends by saying that you do all of this so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now now folks, this is a really underrated part of this passage and and something that really gets at at the heart of what godliness is. And and to try and illustrate that, um, several years ago I, I read a Paul Tripp's book on parenting teenagers when I was doing youth ministry and And one of the things that just surprised me, shocked me when I read through that book is that he said that that teenagers that grow up in Christian homes are the worst legalists. And I was shocked by that, all right? Because because we tend to associate legalism with what? High standards and snotty spirituality, and that's not most teenagers. But, But we need to understand that legalism comes from the heart, it starts here. It doesn't start with what I look like on the outside. And, and, so, and so because of that, a legalist uses and manipulates rules to serve his own selfish purpose. And teenagers do that all the time, right? They don't care about the heart of the law. You know, when you give them a rule, they, they turn into little lawyers who are tremendously skilled at finding technicalities to get around the heart of what you're trying to get through to them. Unless we're too hard on the teenagers, adults oftentimes aren't much better. We, we come to the Scriptures looking for what I need to do to save face. Or what's the absolute minimum that I can do to stay in God's good graces. And when, when someone presses us to get a little further... And we say things like, well, show me in the Bible why I can't do that. And if that's ever your response, show me in the Bible. That's legalism. 
It's using the law of God to serve my ends rather than really having a genuine heart to know what God thinks, to love what He loves, and to do His will. So God here is calling you to something much higher. I mean, notice that the three adjectives at the end of verse 1 or 2, they they return to the sacrificial imagery from verse 1. So godly people are not looking to do the minimum. They're not looking to stay as close to worldliness as possible. No. They are looking for what's best. They want to know what pleases God. He says here that they want to be good, acceptable, and perfect. Again, that's the language from verse 1 about the sacrifices that God wants. They they want to know God. They want Him to be pleased with them. They they want their life to be a sacrifice to the Lord that that, 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 that raises an aroma to Him that is sweet, lovely, that that He appreciates. So, So godly people want to know what the will of God is. In fact, Paul says here that they seek to prove it. And and that word prove simply means discern. So so godly people are thinkers. They want to discern the will of God. They, They don't fear being confronted by the Scriptures. No, they want to learn it. You know, godly people aren't looking for the lowest standard possible. They're looking for the best. They want to know what pleases God, so so they study the Bible. They think. They ask good questions. They pray. Because they want God to transform them so that they please Him. For example, parents, imagine that that you're going to go on a trip for a few days and you're leaving your kids at home and so you write out a list of expectations for your kids. And you read off this list of expectations and you get done and and your son says to you, Dad, what is the best way that I can honor this list? How can I I honor you in obeying what you have said here? Help me understand what you really want. Now you probably faint, right? Because usually it's like... You'd probably faint, pick your jaw up off the floor, and you'd be so pleased. You'd be so pleased that that your child's heart is to honor you. Not just play lawyer games. And that's what God wants from you. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants you to love Him. Not spend your life trying to work around His will and trying to do the minimum, making excuses for why you're doing this and that and this and that. He wants you to strive to know Him and His will so that you can discern what pleases the God that you love. That matters. So so do not be content floating along with with a half-baked spirituality that, that is more conformed to the world than you'd ever care to admit. Be different. Be different. Be like Christ. Because you want to be in a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to Him. So so the challenge of this passage is very clear. No more games. No more games. No excuses. You want to surrender everything to the Lord. Let's have everyone bow your head and close your eyes. This passage is, is very powerful, very strong, and 
think it's worthy for us before we get distracted with the busyness of the day, just take a moment. If there's something you need to confess to the Lord, confess it. If there's something you need to change, commit by the grace of God to change it. And talk to God and ask Him by His grace to do the work that you want Him to do. Lord, we give thanks for the mercy of God. Help us to know that mercy more and more each and every day. And God, help us by your grace to present our bodies a living sacrifice. Nothing, nothing held back from you but a heart to love you and to serve you and to do all of your will. Oh Lord, we need your grace. We cannot do this on our own. We need your grace and we need each other. And so we pray that you, you would work, that you would transform us, and that we would serve you all the days of our life. In Christ's name, amen.